The world needs free-flowing, clean water, but drought and pollution jeopardize our water sources. An SWRI team is taking on these threats, tapping into a solution called atmospheric water harvesting and finding new ways to clean up contaminants. We're discussing their groundbreaking research next on this episode of Technology Today. We live with technology, science, engineering, and the results of innovative research every day. Now, let's understand it better. You're listening to the Technology Today podcast presented by Southwest Research Institute. Hello and welcome to Technology Today. I'm Lisa Benya. Our guest today is SWRI engineer and program manager, Kevin Supak. He leads a research team with two main goals to find ways to augment sources of water and to clean up existing water sources. The team is exploring atmospheric water harvesting, a method of pulling water from the air. And they're also looking at new ways to decontaminate water to make it safe for drinking. Their findings could help communities around the world dealing with water shortages. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Lisa. This is an honor to talk with you. Let's talk about the problem first. Many of us just turn on our taps and clean running water appears, but we're fortunate. We know here in the US and around the world, communities experience drought and clean water shortages. In fact, the Western US is going through a drought right now. So how extensive is the need globally for clean, readily available drinking water? You're absolutely right, Lisa. We're very fortunate here in the US that most of us can go to our taps open up a faucet and get clean running water that is extremely safe to drink. But that's not the case around the world. The United Nations currently estimates that over 25% of humanity lacks access to clean water. Most of these people are in Asia. And this figure can even double during periods of drought and here when we have seasonal droughts that occur around the world. And there's all kinds of sanitation issues that we see around the world where that can contaminate our water or our water sources too. And you mentioned as well, these problems are starting to show up here in the U.S. too. Our increasing population and drought and lack of snowfall have really affected Lake Mead, which is a major water source for the western part of the United States. And it's at its lowest level that it's been and since the Hoover Dam was constructed. I think this is, you know, really significant. We're also all really familiar with the lead contamination issue that occurred in Flint, Michigan, that we're still trying to solve related to our aging infrastructure here in the U.S. So not only is it climate change, it's aging infrastructure, but the world's population is you know, it's just increasingly every year putting pressure on our water resources. So at any given time, 25% to even up to 50% of the population is without the precious resource of water. Is, is that correct? That's correct. It's actually a really scary number when you, when you look at it like that. And I, I saw a, a really interesting video that was put together by some folks in Hollywood. It's on Netflix. It's called Brave Blue World. This is a visual look at how you know, how big this problem really is. And I really would encourage everybody to show this to their children and to just share it and, and watch it because it is a real problem and it's it's only getting worse. Gosh, okay. So, I mean, that's a really clear picture of the problem we're facing. 
Um, but your team is looking at ways to tap into atmospheric water as a water source. You're also researching solutions to clean up existing water sources. I want to go into now, what was your inspiration to begin this type of water research? How did you decide to direct your expertise and resources toward the need for water? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's one that, you know, I feel personally compelled when I see some of the issues that are going on in our environment, you know, I, I want to take action. That's, that's what I would like to do. And that's what I'm, I, I have feel a personal connection to wanting to improve the problems I see around me. And, you know, it's real problem really started a couple of years ago. I was driving into work one day and this is during peak summer, you know, people are watering their lawns a lot. And, you know, I was driving down the street and it's just, you know, almost like every 10th house, I swear, had a broken sprinkler head and it's just spewing water into our streets and water's pouring down the road. I'm driving through it like it's a, a little creek bed. And, it, you know, it really frustrated me to see that, especially during peak drought. And because I know and understand the relationship between water and energy and, you know, I, we talked about how many people act like access to clean water. And I went and talked to my director about it. And so we got to working together and looking at what we could do using our fluid mechanics knowledge and to solve some of these world's uh, problems related to water. And so we started interacting with industry and finding out all the, all the problems that we need to solve. And we started to build a great uh, team here at Southwest that incorporates our experts in hydrology and chemistry and material science and fluids and heat transfer. And we've put together a really great team that is looking to solve this, these problems. All right. So that takes us to atmospheric water harvesting, which is what your team is working on. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Harvesting water from the air around you. Wow. Pulling it from the atmosphere to use for drinking, washing hands, whatever you need. Who knew that was possible? So how does that work? Yeah, so there's water vapor in the air around us all the time. And water vapor is even in arid environments, even in the desert, and we can tap into it by condensing this water. And we're all very familiar with these processes. We see them, you know, we see dew in the mornings on our windshields in our car, you know, rain events that occur. These are all natural ways that we can get water out of the atmosphere. But, you know, we've also all probably enjoyed a cold beverage on, you know, on a, on a hot day, on a humid day, or maybe even at our grandma's house, you know, how we forgot to put a coaster under our cold beverage and we left a water ring around it. We are directly condensing water out of the atmosphere there. And we all may not know this, or maybe a lot do, but the air conditioners in our home today are atmospheric water harvesters. They are doing that day in and day out. And air conditioners in your home can produce on the order of like five to 10 gallons a day of water, you know, any given day that we could use to help flush toilets, maybe to help water plants in our, in our yard. And, and commercial companies have taken this type of technology and they're actually offering atmospheric water harvesting to communities in the U.S. and communities around the world where people are using this technology to help bring clean water to areas they may not have had before. Well, the, the big challenge with a refrigeration-based system, so having cold coils that condense water, is, is that when the humidity level gets so low, like in an arid environment, like in a desert, it basically renders these units inoperable. You have to drive the temperature so low 
that they, they don't work anymore. They don't produce water. And so what we're looking at is a second form of atmospheric water harvesting, and that's actually using a desiccant material to directly adsorb water vapor and its gaseous form into these materials. And we're all familiar with desiccants, just like we're familiar with, with air conditioners. Desiccants are in our, in our daily lives, like rice or uh, the silica gel packets that you see in the equipment that you buy or in shoes maybe that you buy too. And I think we've all had a chance, even some unnamed people in my house who've maybe dropped their phone in water. And, you know, they, they read online, you can put your phone in a bag of rice and it'll, you know, it'll absorb all the water. And, and that's true, it, it does. We're all familiar with desiccants and atmospheric water harvesting technology. And what we wanna do is we wanna augment the existing systems that we have in order to absorb water at all humidity levels, basically, you know, in arid environments or humid environments. And that's really the goal of this research. Okay, so you are working with a particular desiccant and that's how that's, can you spell desiccant for us? Desiccant, D-E-S-I-C-C-A-N-T. Okay, so that's a desiccant. And we're familiar with all the examples you named there. Um, I guess we've just, I've never thought of gathering that water, like let's say from the dew or the drink, the cold drinks and using, being able to use so much of it that you can wash your hands or take a drink of it. Um, so that's really neat. That's an amazing technology there. So you're working with a particular desiccant. You talked about silica um, and that seems to be your preferred desiccant to study. What is it about silica that works so well for this method? So silica is one of the most prevalent materials in the Earth's crust, and we use it every day. You know, it's you see it in forms of sand. Yeah, it can be processed. It's you know from quartz, and it's it's just really readily available. There's a lot of commercial companies that make it, and like I said before, you see it in the silica gel packets that you that that when you buy equipment, and that's really attractive from the standpoint that if we want to start gathering more water from the atmosphere. We need to do it in a cost-effective manner. Now, there are other materials out there that researchers are working on that are called metal organic frameworks or MOFs for short. And these are engineered materials that are desiccants just like silica is and just like rice is, except they're engineered to absorb a lot more water uh, per the unit mass that, that we make it. But these materials are costing thousands of dollars per pound. I mean, this is, they, they have high performance, but it comes at a cost, right? And so there's always an engineering balance between performance and cost. And so there may be a couple of markets here, but right now we're focusing on silica gel because we believe cost is a, is a driving factor here. Okay, and so silica gel, you're talking about those packets in our shoe boxes, as you said. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So when you use, what does this process look like, this technology? It, what is the size? Would this work as a unit that can be placed anywhere to retrieve water from the air? Yes, it actually could be uh, placed anywhere. Uh, we could place it in arid environments, like relative humidities in the 20 to 30% range, which is typical of a desert, to very humid environments as well. And the novelty we're employing here is what's called a fluidized bed. And that's a fancy term for basically saying we're flowing air over small pellets, small pieces of this material. And it's essentially levitating in the air and it's allowing that water vapor to get trapped more easily 
into those little pellets. Then we will then heat those pellets after all the water vapor is absorbed, and then we'll take it through a temperature swing, just like an air conditioner would to condense that water out. We think that a unit that is about that can produce about a gallon per water per day in the uh, in the desert areas would probably be about the size of a large mini fridge. You know, we've, we've all kind of seen those in our dorm rooms or in our garages, and these are those uh, mini fridges that are you know about that mid-size range. That, that's about the size we think it's going to be. So, is it just like a like a cube of silica is what you're looking at, or putting out there, or is there more to it than just the material? You know, we actually have a great video that I would encourage our listeners to look at. Our YouTube video that shows how the air moves over these particles. But yeah, these these particles sit in, in a couple of different tubes. One of them would be a tube that we flow humid air or, or air from the atmosphere over these particles to absorb the water. And the other tube would be where we would move those particles over to it. And that would be the heated tube where we're removing that water vapor from there to more easily condense it. All right, and we'll definitely put that video on the episode 33 episode page so our listeners can check that out. Um, so in what scenarios would atmospheric water harvesting be most useful? You know, I, I think one of the things I need to do uh, real quick is that, is that kind of address the elephant in the room here is that, you know, it takes a fair amount of energy and, it, you know, it's a very complicated process for this, you know, refrigerator sized unit, you know, mini fridge sized unit to condense, you know, a gallon of water in the desert. You know, one of your listeners may be, you know, hearing in and, and saying, wow, that's a it's pretty complicated just for a gallon of water. And, and, and I would absolutely say that's right. I mean, uh, this, this type of technology would never replace, you know, our typical sources of water like groundwater and aquifers and things like that. But there are scenarios where we need to make water where that infrastructure isn't there. And the Department of Defense is really interested in this technology because moving water around to the front lines of our battlefield is actually a really logistical challenge. And if you could free up some trucking to move other equipment and make water directly at the battlefield, that would be a huge, huge gain for our soldiers on the front lines. Another area is disaster relief. And, you know, when hurricane strikes, or earthquake strikes, or tsunamis or other natural disasters, a lot of times our water sources get, get contaminated or maybe there's not electrical power there to be able to provide water. And so if you had an atmospheric water harvester with you, you could start producing water for people directly from the air around you. In another area, I talked about this early in the, in the, in the, uh, the interview here, is that the home user, and that's homes all over the world, Atmospheric water harvesting is actually already reaching impoverished communities, and these are the refrigeration-based methods. But I, like I mentioned earlier, they only operate over a, a kind of a narrow range of humidity. If we can use our technology, the adsorbent-based technology, and pair it with these refrigeration-based me based methods, we can greatly enhance the amount of water that they can produce every day. Because your technology can work even in the desert, as you're saying. That's right. Amazing. Okay. Does it require a power source? Yeah, and that, that's a great question. And absolutely, yes. Every form of water requires some type of power. So today, most of our water gets pumped out of the ground or from a river to different areas. And so this is pumping power. To condense water from the air, you actually need more power than you do to convey it around. And, and that's because we have to change it from a gas form to a liquid form. 
the earth does this for us um, daily almost you know with day and night cycles and there are atmospheric water harvesting researchers out there that are using the daytime heating to heat these components and the nighttime cold humidity humid air and absorbing water but those cycles are obviously really long and they don't produce as much water so you do need power and you know as i mentioned earlier these these this technology won't replace traditional water the amount of water you, you can you can use so it's a um, it's definitely needs power and you need a, a fair amount of this this adsorbent material to make the water potable so you also mentioned that in some of the communities in need that atmospheric water harvesting is already being used and that's more the refrigeration method so how long has atmospheric water harvesting been looked at as a solution and um have you is it is it getting results at least the refrigeration method that's in use right now yeah there and there's there's a couple of really great examples of that. And, and one of those is highlighted in that Brave Blue World documentary I, I talked about earlier, where there are some communities in Africa that have basically home-based units where they're able to provide drinking water to their people that usually have to walk miles to go to a creek bed and get water. It's it's really impressive, really amazing. And and I would say that, you know, the answer to your question is, is that maybe in the past 20 years, people have been, really been taking this more seriously in terms of refrigeration-based atmospheric water harvesting. And there are, are companies that have gone to Flint, Michigan to provide drinking water for people that are being affected by the lead contamination crisis with their atmospheric water harvesting units. This is the refrigeration-based ones again. And there are this uh, the same group actually went to Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria and helped provide atmospheric water harvested water for this community. So you know the short answer is it's it's been around for you know a long time air conditioning around for a long time but using them as potable water is you know probably the past 20 years or so okay and so just to clarify as we've been talking about there are two kinds of atmospheric water harvesting which is the refrigeration based refrigeration based method and the method using desiccants which right. is the method you are studying um, which is not as widespread. And, right, definitely um, not, definitely not. So your team is looking at this method because it's, it's a little bit simpler, it's a little bit more flexible. Um, so what stage of research are you in and how long could it be until your method can be deployed where needed most? So the stage we're at right now is that we are taking some of the fundamentals that universities have done when they've looked at some of these high surface area materials to absorb water. And there's a couple of different cycles that I mentioned earlier, like maybe using the day and night cycles to help make water. And what we're trying to do is put this in practical form, put it in so that we can take it on a pathway to commercialization. And, and we're currently at what we call the bench top scale which means you know, we're making water on the milliliters per day kind of production just to vet out all the different pieces of, of a adsorbent-based atmospheric water harvesting system, which is the fluidized bed that I mentioned earlier, making sure we understand the variables and how we can scale that process to something that's usable, something that can make like five liters of water, a little over a gallon of water a day for an individual use. And we're we are currently designing that system right now, and we expect that system to be operating before the year end so we can collect some critical data and take this data 
to maybe some commercialization partners or to work with the military or others to start deploying this technology. Okay, so we've touched on this a little bit already, but what are the limitations of water harvesting? So the limitations of, as mentioned earlier, the current water harvesting techniques, which is refrigeration-based, is, you know, you need a high humidity environment for them to be effective. We're trying to greatly expand the humidity window to be able to operate in an arid environment or in a humid environment or couple of that together. Uh, but we've talked about power. You still need power to make water in these scenarios and that can come in the form of, of solar cells or solar heating it can come from day night cycles but sometimes you just need water and maybe you seem to plug this into the wall get electricity or you you run an engine like a diesel engine or something and and you get you have a generator there that can provide electricity for you and i will say as well you know i, I some somebody reached out to me recently and like has anybody ever studied if you start absorbing all this water and providing water from the atmosphere, are you going to affect the climate? And, and that's a very valid question. And I'll answer it with that, you know, people, we have traditional water sources that we're never going to replace. And it would take an absorbent amount of energy, I mean, a, a ton of energy to take all the water in atmosphere, which is currently estimated to be more than the amount of rivers that we have in the world, and start condensing that. So we definitely don't want to get to the point where we're condensing enough water from the atmosphere that we're affecting rain and, and snowfall and, and things like that. So that's that's the biggest limitations I see right now. So there's a definite balance of tracking these units and, and making sure that it's not overdone, but when needed, it's a great solution, it sounds like. Absolutely. I mean, it's intended to augment sources when you don't have them, or it's intended to uh, augment, you know, disaster relief teams and and maybe even really remote communities that just don't have access to clean water. It's a lifeline, I would think, for those communities. Absolutely. Water is life. And yeah. I think, you know, it is very precious. So aside from water harvesting, you're also looking at ways to clean existing water sources to make these sources safe for drinking. First, what type of water sources are you looking at cleaning up? Well, I think most folks are familiar with that there's a lot of desalination that's going on in the world. And so seawater is an obvious source of water that we could tap into. We can't drink that right away. You know, we've got salt in it. We've got other dissolved minerals in there. Uh, brackish water is another term that's used that we are currently in San Antonio doing. There's a, there's a plant here that's making 10 million gallons a day of water where they're pumping water from what's called a brackish water reservoir. And this is kind of a mixture between seawater and fresh water. And so, you know, our, our local utility is currently doing that. Like many other utilities here in the U.S., they're, they're going into these unconventional sources. And there's another area um, that's growing in research attention. And this is, this is wastewater from different processes. This is wastewater that's coming from industries, from cooling towers that we have, um, that that like our thermoelectric plants, when we make electricity, they they use a lot of water. Industrial processes, as I mentioned, agriculture is a is a big area as, as well. So these are all sources that we're looking at in order to provide augmentation to our existing groundwater and river sources. So your goal would be to clean up this water again to make it safe for drinking. What methods are you exploring to decontaminate water? So I mentioned earlier that 
most of the cost and moving water from like an aquifer to your home is in the pumping cost. And there's a little bit of cost associated with chlorinating water and, and things like that. But most of the energy is in that, that pump itself. Well, these other methods, these unconventional methods, they require a lot more pumping power. They require a lot more treatment to be able to make them potable. So it's really, it's the energy needed to bring these unconventional sources of water to potable levels. And it's, it's, it's really astronomical when you look at how much energy it takes to do this. And so what we're looking at is different treatments and post treatments that you could do to reduce the amount of energy needed to desalinate water. We're looking at extending the components of these systems so that they have to go uh, fewer time between cleanings and, and, and basically extend the overall lifetime of these plants. And another area that we're really looking at, and this is of growing concern in, in the United States and around the world, is, you know, I mentioned industrial processes and the waste that come off there. It's the growing amount of forever chemicals that are in our process. A forever chemical is a chemical that doesn't naturally break down in our, in our, in our water supply like many other compounds do. And these chemicals have the names, uh, people may have seen them in the news called PFAS, PFAS, and PFOAs. And these are chemicals that come from us making nonstick cookware making things like stain guards. They're even in the plastics and other repellent materials that repel oil and water and the takeout food that we order. And it's it's really alarming how much humanity is starting to affect our groundwater. And I, I saw a, a really disturbing article the other day that we're even finding these chemicals in breast milk. I, th I think that should send red flags up yeah. everywhere for people that you know we need to start taking better care of the precious resource we have of, of water. So, so what we're doing, we're looking at developing more efficient methods. We need to reduce the amount of energy needed to clean this water. We need to reduce the amount of energy to make these unconventional sources of water uh, competitive with the traditional water sources that we have. They may even be in the form of, of home-sized units too. Like maybe the individual consumer might wanna buy some of this technology at their home if these problems can't be addressed at the municipal level. Okay, so that's what you're doing right now. You're researching ways to take out these chemicals. Uh, so, you, so when you say a unit at your home, are you thinking something under the sink that you just turn on your tap and it it cleans, which exists with um, reverse osmosis that's systems, right. but it'd be like a step up from that. I'm I'm guessing. Right. Reverse osmosis can remove a lot of contaminants from the water, but there are some contaminants it can't remove. So we're looking at ways to efficiently do this. Uh, there, there are standard methods for getting these forever, forever chemicals out, but they're really energy intensive. Some municipalities are starting to deploy these in heavily contaminated areas. These are areas like in Arizona and Minnesota and North Carolina where these plants were making these kind of chemicals or at military bases where firefighting foams were used to help train firefighters. These chemicals are, are leaching into our water sources there. So, you know, we, we think there, that there could be a municipal level kind of technology where we can provide some more efficient ways of destroying these compounds. There could also be a home-sized unit too. Um, we, you know, like I said, we put together a team where we're, we're brainstorming all these different ideas on, on how to address these really critical problems. 
So again, two parts to your research here. One, the water harvesting, which we discussed in depth, and then the cleaning up our water sources, which is research that is just beginning, but um, yeah, the results could be phenomenal and it could really help, again, a lot of communities around the world. So you are taking on a huge global issue of this clean water shortage issue and your team's research has the potential to improve lives, as we said. And I'm sure that's encouragement to continue your work, but what is your motivation? What drives you to continue this research? And that's a, that's a great question. And I'll try to stay off my soapbox as much as I can <laughs> as I answer it. Um, I, I, per, I have a feeling I have a personal responsibility to take action here. And you know, when I see a problem, I, I want to address it. And, you know, we're very fortunate that we live in a world where, for the most part, we have clean air to breathe and fresh water to drink. You know, as mentioned earlier, water is life and you can't function without it. We all have a part in this. And, you know, I don't want to ignore the problems of today and have our future generations, you know, maybe my my great grandkids or maybe my grandkids, you know, look back on our time and say, you know, these guys knew about all these problems and they did nothing about it. I mean, this is, uh, you know, why didn't y'all do anything about it? I, I don't want our descendants to look back at us and say they ignored these problems. I want our future generations to have a, an, a world where they don't have to use atmospheric water harvesting just to get clean water to drink. You know, I, I, I don't want a world like that. So we have the technology to start solving these problems today. We just need more people, more governments, more commercial companies to start adopting these technologies. And can we help with this problem at home through water conservation? Is there another way we can help with, I mean, this huge global issue? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because we can all help in this, in this area. And I, I recently read an article and, you know, I've talked a lot about, hey, go, go read this, go watch this video. Um, I get really excited about this topic. I, you know, I realize people probably don't have the time to go read all these things. But there was a really interesting article, if you had the time, written in The Economist magazine called Thirsty Planet. And this article really opened my eyes. I read this a couple of years ago about how big the water problem is in our planet, how much contamination we have in other countries and, and how this is just a, a growing issue as we increase our population. And, you know, this quote really stuck out in there that, um, that, that this author had in there. It says, the best way to solve the world's water woes is to use less of it. And, and I think that's where it really drives home is that if we started using less water in our daily lives, we will help the problem for our future generations. And the easiest way to do that, if, if you look at, um, you remember me mentioning earlier that agricultural use is about, um, is a very high consumer of water. We irrigate a lot of crops. We irrigate a lot of things that we grow in areas that are arid and that need the water to grow our food. If we were really cognizant about minimizing our food waste, that actually would make a really big difference. And there, you know, especially in some of the high um, high water use materials or high water use food. And unfortunately, um, I'm not sure if you're a chocolate lover, Lisa. Chocolate oh, is at the yeah, top of the said, list. Yeah, I said it, it is in at the, the last very, episode. Yeah, <laughs> chocolate is at the top of the list, and unfortunately, and and that's really bad because I love Snickers bars. I, and I'm not telling people stop eating chocolate. I'm just saying, you know, let's be cognizant of the food waste that we use. You know, buy what you need. 
don't overbuy because agricultural use is over 80% of our water consumption here in the US. So that's 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 big numbers, right? So if you can make a difference there, you actually impact the world much better than uh, maybe replacing a your toilet with a low flush one, which it, which you should do anyway. But agricultural use is a, is a big driver. Um, you know, beef and cotton are other two big categories too. So if you can minimize those areas, you know, buying new clothes, you know, less often, and and maybe minimizing meat consumption. Again, I'm not trying to tell people to. to change your lifestyles from like don't don't eat meat I'm, I'm saying is be cognizant that these different areas use a lot of water yeah Another, awareness yeah. awareness, awareness makes big. a huge yeah. difference yeah I, I wouldn't have connected those dots myself so thank you for bringing that to light um food waste buying clothes all the time all that stuff can help our water yeah, well, even even electrical right. use, like in, you know, I mentioned earlier, power plants need water to cool. Like we have a lot of waste heat in power plants. Like it, water is everywhere. There's a there's this thing called the energy water nexus that we study. This is a term that everything is connected between energy and water in our world, and and we all can make a difference by just being good stewards of using water and energy wisely. We've covered so much, and you've really given us some great ways to make a difference in our daily lives, but. What would you say is the big takeaway today for our listeners? What would you like us to remember about your research and our water resources? I think the biggest takeaway that I that I would say is 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 use this knowledge, you know, and and talk to your children about it. Don't take for granted that we can go to a a faucet and turn it on and clean water comes out. Water that keeps us alive. I mean, that's 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 such a blessing to have, you know, that we, we live in communities that, t that have water infrastructure that make sure that our health is of utmost concern and that, you know, just remember that there's a substantial amount of energy related to water and food growth and, you know, the electricity that we use and, you know, try to try to be good stewards of that. And while, you know, we are doing some really groundbreaking research at SWI to help look at unconventional sources of water, it's never going to replace our traditional ones. The amount of water that, that we pump from traditional sources just cannot even compete with some of these other non-traditional sources like desalination and atmospheric water harvesting. So let's take care of the resources that we have and just, just really just enjoy what's been given to us. Such great lessons for us today. One family can make a difference. One person can make a difference with this global problem. And, you know, you and your team are really living up to the SWRI mission of developing solutions that benefit humanity. And I can see, you know, humanity is really going to benefit from your work. So a big thank you to you and your team for taking on this issue and looking for the solutions to this huge problem. And I think I speak for our listeners. We look forward to the results of your research and no doubt we will see more clean water flowing because of your work. Thank you for joining us, Kevin. Thank you very much for your time, Lisa. And thank you to our listeners for learning along with us today. You can hear all of our Technology Today episodes and see photos and complete transcripts at podcast.swri.org. Remember to share our podcast and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Want to see what else we're up to? Connect with Southwest Research Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Check out the Technology Today magazine at technologytoday.swri.org. 
And now is a great time to become an SWRI problem solver. Visit our career page at swri.jobs. Ian McKinney and Brian Ortiz are the podcast audio engineers and editors. I am producer and host Lisa Pena. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.